You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. Welcome to our second episode. We're speaking to Ezra Furman. first spoke four years ago when the album Perpetual Motion People was released. This time, Ezra's promoting 12 Nudes. The album's title comes from The Glass Essay, a poem by one of Ezra's favorite authors, Anne Carson. In it, Carson has these visions that appear while she's meditating, and she refers to them as nudes. The fact that they are bodies in pain or intense transformation resonates with Ezra, who is gender non-conforming. 12 Nudes is Ezra's fifth solo album, but the first all-out punk one. And in this episode, she explains why. My name's Ezra Furman. I am a songwriter and performer and singer and guitar player and writer. We're on tour right now and we've put out some records lately. I mean a record of all new music in August called 12 Nudes. And then we put out the soundtrack album from this Netflix show that we did music for called Sex Education. You know I love you so bad. So bad. You know I love you so bad. Like the kid in the back of the classroom who can't do the math because he can't see the played in a band in February 2006 and then we went on tour that summer and yeah somehow we got signed to a record label and put out a record in 2007 and I've been doing it very much continuously since then we bought drugs from you had a moment there where you thought maybe you wouldn't do it anymore well, I think a lot of touring musicians is such a consuming job. We all think about giving it up at some point, but I actually decided to stop being a touring musician. 
in autumn of 2013 when we put out a record called Day of the Dog that I knew was good, and um, we did a long tour supporting it in the U.S., and nobody came to the shows really much. And I was like, this is not the best way to spend my life. And then I thought it was kind of ending, but um, the, the record started to like get really noticed and played on the radio in the UK and all this stuff happened. And then sort of like, hmm, yeah, maybe it's actually not the time to give it up right now. And there was some other factors too, because I, I was observing Shabbat as I do, in a in a very traditional way whenever I could, but on tour I didn't because we always had to have Friday night shows and I thought that I couldn't have the religious and spiritual life that I wanted if I stayed in a, in a band that goes on tour. But then we decided rather than quit, we could find a way to never play on Friday nights and never travel on, on Saturday and just keep the seventh day totally holy. And so you grew up in Chicago. You have three siblings? Yes, that's right. They're all very creative, I hear. What was your home life like? Yeah, um, so four kids in a house. My, so I'm the second of four. My older brother, Noah Furman, is, he's an artist and a sculptor and, and a teacher. Um, you should just look him up, Noah Furman, and uh, buy his art if you're listening to this. <laughs> um, this is the first thing that came into my head because he would sort of like, like let's all like draw. We'd like, make up games like we'll draw some like animals. We'd like make up non-existent animals and write like facts about them. Stuff like that. Or try to make our own comic books or stuff like that. Yeah, he, he was just obsessed with drawing and visual art. And then I was like second in line and I was like, I felt like I got to do something of my own, you know, something creative and cool of my own. I got really into words. I got really into writing stories. And that's what I sort of dreamed I would probably grow up to be is like write fantasy novels. And I my I made my little kid versions of fantasy novels. I thought I'd be a prose writer. And then about 12 years old or something, music just like grabbed me by the lapels and was like, you're doing music. The watershed moment was it was hearing Green Day, the album Dookie, which my older brother had purchased and just left around. It, and then it was just punk and other punk bands after that. Because um, I had definitely listened to music and enjoyed it a lot. But um, it was punk that was like, this is like, this is the way that you're going to survive. Because I was like a sad middle school kid who wanted to be popular and I wasn't popular and I wasn't, I just was not succeeding socially or, I don't know, I, I had trouble in school too. And um, then it was like, Green Day, I declare I don't care no more. It was like the way forward, the only way forward is for me to not care and to be like a nonconformist and stop worrying about all the ways that I didn't fit the model of successful 12-year-old boy. Ezra had wanted a guitar to play punk songs. Ezra's parents heard these songs and said, learn to play some Bob Dylan songs too. Like any good kid wanting to please their mom, Ezra agreed. But listening to Dylan's Blonde on Blonde album proved an enduring musical gateway for the young teen. Other these days. 
But I didn't really write songs until I was 14. I, I got a guitar for my 13th birthday. Um, and, and then I started to write songs when I was 14. But before that, I had kind of like, I would just make these, like alongside my, my like stories, I would like make word documents of, of like albums. I would make like an album title and like all the song titles. And like, this is my album. And then some, sometimes I'd like make up a whole song kind of that I would just like sing to myself. <laughs> um, so I was sort of doing that. And, and I like planned out my whole career as like a, um, I don't know. <laughs> a punk rocker? Well, no, like, <laughs> it was even earlier. It was like when I was like 11 years old and before I was into punk, just listening to like Billy Joel. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm, I wrote like all these little Billy Joel knockoffs. And so I was definitely dreaming about it. I wasn't actually writing anything I, that could be performed or anything. Like it was just like, um, yeah, but then, yeah, I was off, I was 14 and I started writing songs because I had a, I had a book of Bob Dylan's songs and I would just find one that I hadn't heard and I wouldn't listen to it. And I'd make up my own way of playing it and make up my own melody. And then I'd change a chord. And then I'd go through and I'd change all the words. And then I had my own original song. You know, and I'd, and I'd go check and listen to the Bob Dylan song. And be like, oh, yeah, it doesn't sound anything like it. <laughs> it's good. I, it's originality. So, but what what was it? So it would be a Bob Dylan song, that one that you hadn't heard yet. Right. And you would look at the title and make up a story from there and then put the music to it? Well... No, I would just m make up something totally different, um, but using the same rhythms, you know? Like, like, it was like writing a parody. I was like, you know what I've never really acknowledged is that a huge influence on me was Weird Al Yankovic. I used to listen to those Weird Al Yankovic parody songs, and me and my friend would write our own parodies. I remember we did a Britney Spears parody song of Hit Me Baby One More Time. <laughs> it was really... It's like we're not funny or good, but it was called like Hit Me Dealer One More Time, and it was like about like being addicted to gambling <laughs> as the, I don't know, which we didn't know anything about that, but it seemed funny to us, like 11 years old, 12 years old. It's like a writing exercise. We made a million of them. I wish I could remember more. Let's say from about 14, once you discovered writing music, what was a perfect day for you like? I don't know. What was going on when I was 14? We'd, like, go to the mall. Um, I had, like, I had like two friends, basically. Well, no. Actually, by, by the time I was 14, I was in a uh, Jewish youth group. It was called BBYO, B'nai B'rith Youth Organization. And the good thing about BBYO was, like, run by the teenagers. Like, every chapter just had one adult who had to be present at, like, official chapter meetings and events. Yeah, I was really into that, and I was, like, I, like, was on the board of my BBYO chapter and planning events and stuff. I hated high school, pretty much, and had very few friends there. And then on the weekends, I would, like, see my friends at this Jewish youth group and, like, just, like, so passionate about it because it was, like, I was, like, a social outcast everywhere except there. And there I was like, you know, everyone thought it was funny. We used to have this thing called the video scavenger hunt. It was like, do or find these things and like get them on film. Just doing dumb stuff in public and getting it on film. And then we'd also do like, the we would do community service in this 
youth group and we'd have like Jewish events where we like oh, maybe get some kind of speaker dances. You know, we, I just like didn't go to school dances. I went to our BBYO dances. Sounds like it's that um, sense of belonging that you were maybe craving that you didn't get anywhere else that you got there. Yeah, it was a good friend time. But like, yeah, it was also I was also closeted and like it was not okay to be gay. Really, it really. I mean, I just felt like it wasn't even okay to be a little bit feminine at all, <clears throat> you know. Um, so there was like that side of it. I was at a Jewish private school until eighth grade, and then yeah. So when I was fourteen, that was like my first year in public school, which was totally different, much much bigger. I was sort of overwhelmed with all that, um, mm -hmm. and getting into bands and writing songs. What a what a time, 14 years old. Even as a child, Ezra had a deep connection to faith and as an adult has chosen to observe Shabbat in a traditional way. Shabbat is the Jewish Sabbath, a day of rest. From sunset on Friday till nightfall on Saturday, Ezra observes it by not engaging with any kind of technology or doing any sort of work. You then grew up attending a Reconstructionist synagogue. So, like, how was that experience for you, and how was that different from a regular synagogue? Oh, um, my whole childhood, my parents belonged to the Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation, JRC, in Evanston. And, yeah, it's like a very, it's like a lefty, like, sometimes hippie-ish, some, but, like, um, there's a rabbi, but, like, a lot of the services are congregationally led and participatory and stuff like that. But then I went to school. I was going to school at a conservative Jewish day school, which is, it's sort of like closest to Orthodox of any of the like non-Orthodox Jewish mm -hmm. denominations. Yeah. So, and yeah, there were sort of different strands of influence of kinds of Judaism. And then my parents, I mean, our family, we had Friday night dinners for Shabbat, but we didn't like keep Shabbat in the traditional way that I do now. And, like, we'd be very traditional about Passover and do a big Passover Seder, two big Passover Seders, very strict about observing Passover. Yeah, it was an interesting mix of more and less traditional forms of Judaism. With the more lefty one, was there, like, could you see, like, room for you to reconcile these things that you were maybe feeling that you already kind of, you, you probably already knew at that stage mm. that, that you were gay or you like boys? It must be really hard to then reconcile with this thing that you love so much, this religion that you love, to then be like, but where do I fit in? Right. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I made it even more complicated because when I was about 15, I was decided... Um, I want to be orthodox. I want to be really orthodox and um, strictly traditional. And um, and that was sort of mostly from the influence of this older kid I knew who was orthodox. He kind of showed me all about it. And and then also I was read. I started to like read Jewish writers and philosophy and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is like an adult thing. That I mean, no one was making me do it anymore. And I realized, yeah, I I craved it. I I. I don't know. I had the, I just have, uh, instinct for, for holiness and the thinking. I don't know the idea of the infinite. You know, um, <clears throat> but reconciling that, especially like among the Orthodox, like you just can't even talk about being gay. Mostly, I mean, it's that's starting to change in certain 
circles. But um, the thing is, even at my parents' left-wing Reconstructionist synagogue, like I didn't, I didn't know of anyone that was gay there. It wasn't talked about or anything. I didn't know any gay adults my whole childhood, um, and only met some gay kids when they like came out in high school, which I did not. And um, so for me, a really important thing has been realizing that there is a lot of precedent for being not only like totally, totally accepting of all forms of queerness within Orthodox Judaism. There's a lot of reasons to think that that should be the way Jewish law goes. And that's not like antithetical to itself. I mean, like so many things in Judaism, um, the way it is practiced and the way Jewish law is, are just really directly, they, it, like the, the, the text of the Torah is directly contradicted all the time by the oral tradition and the Talmud and the way it's developed, it was made to develop. If it had been any kind of concern in the rabbinic era to protect gay people, or if that had been recognized as a thing, or gender nonconforming people, then I'm sure it would have been it would have become traditional Judaism, but uh, it's a thing I could talk about forever, and mm-hmm. people would you know so many people would disagree, so many people would uh, agree. But I just I it was hard. It was a hard stuff to reconcile, but I could see a way forward, a way that I wasn't just a total impossible math problem of a person, like obsessed with honoring God and in love with a book that legislates my death. It is some, It is like a thorny thing to deal with. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think it's sort of built. It's built for dealing with that kind of stuff and lifting up human dignity above all. I mean, that's the deepest Jewish value, I think. I go to synagogue usually just in the morning, sometimes, sometimes in the, on Friday night. But um, and synagogue is like long and just like joyful, and then very social after the service, and everyone hangs around eating food, and you just like learned a bunch of new teachings based on ancient texts, and uh, yeah, it's just it's rich. It's it's just so rich, and it's it's a, it's way different from most of the rest of my week. One great thing about it is that it's a break from technology and capitalism and, and yeah, you don't use money. There's like, it feels to me like all hierarchies kind of break down. Everybody 
is like free and they're not defined. You're not a success or a failure. You're not trying to do anything or change anything about the world. You're just trying to love the world and love the people in it. If if you do it the way I do it, which has like a lot of restrictions and I don't use the electricity and technology and money and I don't travel, I don't write, don't work, it becomes this like world, this like this alternate vision of what the best of human life might have to offer or what kind of world we might want to live in. And then, you know, but Jews, we're not monks. I work, I want to um, work hard the rest of the week and change the world, change my station in life. But there's always one day a week where all of those struggles, it's a ceasefire, you know? Do you um, have a moment when you had to kind of reconcile being a practicing Jew and being a rock star? I mean, anyone who wants to do, like, a passionate spiritual practice, like, you have to, um, it usually doesn't easily fit with, like, regular life. And that's kind of, I started to realize that's sort of the point. I mean, you're trying to bring heaven down to earth, trying to have transcendence and God in your in your everyday life. It's like, it's gonna, <clears throat> I don't know, to care about abstract things like God or about justice, honesty, stuff like that, it's inconvenient. Like, the most convenient thing to do, especially in our hyper-capitalist society, is, like, to not care about abstract things, except money. And basically, that's the expedient thing. But almost everyone realized that it realizes that um, you don't want to sacrifice everything for the most expedient way. You want to care about kindness and um, beauty and... Um, things that don't have a bottom line of usefulness but are just great for some other reason. Um, <laughs> the yeah. good stuff of life, you know? So the last time we spoke was uh, for Perpetual Motion People. Obama was still in the White House. Yeah. And um, my, has everything changed? How has the last four years, this sort of upheaval, been for you? It's obviously make made you a very prolific songwriter. Hmm. You think? No? I think I was already a prolific songwriter, I guess. I I was I yeah, it, it is true though that I'm like having a lot of my art is involving responses to current events or sort of the um <clears throat> the mood of the Western world, which is a lot of anger and paranoia and um Mm. Yeah, I basically fear for the safety of the vulnerable is like what um, has been haunting me. And that is showing up in in my artwork a lot. Um, I guess... Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, it's hard to know sometimes like what changes have been in, like, the public conversation and what changes have been in politics and what changes have been in technology and the way we use it. I know I'm just, like, getting emergencies are showing up on my phone every morning, you know? Um, <clears throat> and it does feel different. And the emergencies have just all been exacerbated. Like, there was already climate change emergency um, 10 years ago. 
and there was already like white supremacy and the safety of non-white people in America was already an emergency 10 years ago. The safety of trans people, queer people was already an emergency and long before our current president, like it was already too late for so many people who had lost their lives, lost their safety, lost their health, lost their housing. Um, I like to point out that like there, it's not like a bunch of emergencies started um, when we got a new president, but they all got worse. And the president's a white supremacist. He doesn't believe in climate change. Basically, attacks on everyone who is threatened by these emergencies just started getting attacked by the most powerful people. And that was normalized in culture. And like, yeah, it made me make different kind of um, music. I, I do look back on like perpetual motion people and I'm like, it just seems like a different, it just seems like a different era. I wouldn't write, I don't know, I wouldn't write Lousy Connection, this like sort of sardonic song about white guilt or, and, or like privilege and not being sure if I should be a person who has a big audience that I'm talking to. Like, I feel like that's what that song is about. And like, I don't know, it just seems like irrelevant to me now considering the like blaring loud volume of all the other emergencies just like crowding that stuff out of my soul your music has always had flecks of punk and even when you've like absorbed other genres in there into that very unique mold of what is Ezra Furman so you doing a punk record to me seems like the most natural thing in the world but you didn't want to like do a real punk record for a long time for fear that it might be like karaoke because like you know doing something that's already been done before so what kind of finally propelled you motivated you to like make this like unabashedly punk record 12 nudes yeah well it's a really interesting thing uh, a number of things kind of came together that told me it was time to make that punk record I, i've written a lot of punky songs over the years and a lot of them never got recorded some a couple of them ended up on this record actually 
but um, I would just write them and be like, what's interesting about it? Like, why is that? It's just a punk song. I felt like I'd already heard it somewhere else from someone else. But then a lot of them I liked so much, like they did end up on a record. It's like, like Tip of a Match, like... That's a song that I was like, yeah, that that was like the the, the punk song on on uh, perpetual motion people. I guess the deepest part of it is that I felt like there was a lot of despair going going around, which I related to. I felt a big wave of despair after the presidential elections in 2016, and I felt like my job had to be like despair is not a strategy. Like you can't give up. You just can't. I mean, for me, I said to myself, like, I don't, well, I can't even, I just felt like I had to rally the troops, sort of. And I was like, it's going to be okay. We're going to stick together, solidarity, tell them all to go to hell. And, I mean, that was an older song, but, and like, I'm scared too, but we're going to be okay. And I was saying that so much that I felt like I was really looking away from how bad it really felt, how afraid I really was in particular of climate change and also white supremacy and that sort of sweeping the globe in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't know. To me, it started to feel like we made Transangelic Exodus, this album that was very concerned with solidarity and like solidarity and, solidarity and fear. And like it was so freaked out and angry, but it was also like I found a way to make it be like, we're going to be okay. We are together. We have guardian angels or something. And um, it. we took so long to make it. It was so complicated. We, I, it felt like so complicated just to say we're going to be okay. So many things had... You had to like go through a pretzel of, of telling yourself things. I don't know. And also we had to make this whole pretzel of a record that we took forever to make on purpose. And it was very orchestrated. Both these things, I was just like, I started listening to only punk rock after we finished the record. And I was like, I need the direct, the most simple, like, we are fucked. I just need to hear somebody who's willing to say that or like, this feels so bad. And then I realized I it was time to speak in that register. This feels so bad. And like, I guess I, in the end, it's like, I mean, I'm really not hopeless and I'm not giving in to despair but I'm like this feels so bad it's too late this is an emergency and it's too late in order to like wake myself up do something respond like it's actually an emergency so yeah I made this very direct record and there's not a lot of fiction on it I mean there's not a lot of characters you know it's sort of much more from my life to the page to the record That song and the song um, Blown on the same day, actually, just right after each other. I should remember which one was first. Um, 
I think Blown was probably first. But I was like, that's not even, that's such a short song, I gotta keep going. Uh, <laughs> but, um, well, there I had all this stuff about, I don't know, I had all these images in my head of fleeing. And, I mean, with Transangelic Exodus, we'd been touring on it and stuff, and there's all this stuff on that record that I'm proud of that is like, we're leaving the city. Like, like no place, that song, no place. It's like, we got to get out of here. And I've always had cities, like, like some kind of relationship with a city is in a lot of my lyrics. Like, Restless Year, I set up camp in the center of town. It's like, I'm like part of this city, but not part of it. And then Radar Our Crusaders is like, we got to get out of town. The whole city's burning down. Um, and Jerusalem stuff, like... I don't know, just a sort of all this like refugee trauma, which uh, it was sort of swirling around in my head. And then I got, yeah, then I got onto that rhythmic 13 syllable thing. Um, <laughs> I was counting up the syllables, obviously, because there's that line about 13 syllables. <laughs> and uh, a lot, sometimes songwriting, especially that kind where you write the songs really fast, which most of these 12 nude songs like. I didn't do much editing and I wrote them in one sitting, mostly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it just is. You kind of like catch a, you just catch a mood. You catch a wave of a mood where you're like, I can speak in this register, and here's the stuff I'm gonna say. I just, it just comes out pretty fast. Um, <laughs> it's such a short song and it's like dumb in a way. There's something sort of. It's called Rated Our Crusaders. But like, there's there's a lot in it. There's a lot in it, and it's not. Um, it um, well, that's I don't know. <laughs> I hope it's good. I hope you like it. I think it. I love the tone it took, and it was influenced. I should say by this band, the Coneheads, from Northwest Indiana, slash the deepest southest side of Chicago, like where Chicago hits Indiana. I think is where the Coneheads are from, and they're just this teenage punk band that I don't think exists anymore, and they are. So so good, and I've only listened to them on YouTube because I don't know if you can get their records, but a, a true inspiration. You said something about the way the music industry is today, which I thought was very interesting. And uh, you said, if you're going to take the money, do it with nauseam, not glee. <laughs> uh, can we talk about Coachella 2017? Because I think that's about the time that I saw you play live. Uh, you were a bit torn about A, performing at Coachella because it was a great chance for you to finally like be on this bill in Coachella and like all your indie rock stars want to be there and you know it's such a great opportunity and the money but at the same time all the stuff had come out about Golden Voice which is owned by Philip Anschutz and super PACs that defund LGBTQ communities and Planned Parenthood all the stuff was also coming to the fore yeah. a lot at that time how hard was that for you to to not just say, okay, I'm going to walk away and like to actually prompt a conversation and still do it? Hmm. Yeah, it's still, it's a tough one. I don't know. I guess like the thing I had to think about was like weighing the benefit of doing it to me and my group and our survival, which was a very large benefit to us. I mean, like, I, you know, we were, like, it was a year we were not, didn't have a record, and we were trying to make a new record and taking a long time to make it, to make it just right, and, like, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of income. We were sweating from that. Um, it's the kind of thing, if you turn it down, 
there are consequences and there's consequences that you like don't foresee necessarily but then there's just like and then so weighing that against like what kind of impact would not doing it make which i think it would make some kind of impact and i think it's possible that it could make it could sort of be like i i kept thinking about it like maybe i don't do it and maybe then other people start doing it and like whoa a third of the lineup of coachella just dropped out that matters you know at the same time i was like messaging with some other artists and i was like yeah i think everybody's taking the gig and um so anyway what what we ended up doing is basically doing it and then and talking about it um i mean my my biggest problem with anschutz philip anschutz who owns the aeg which owns golden voice which runs coachella is his it's just funds like fracking and and building oil pipelines and the fossil fuel industry that's threatening the human species that was my biggest problem and then also i mean very hard to I don't know. Yeah, that he's very anti-gay. And anyway, sorry. I'm 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 just reliving the whole thing as you ask me about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it was very difficult decision for you. Either way, you were seeing kind of both sides of everything, the complete 360 degree picture, and just going, "What's the best way forward for me for all of us here?" Right. And also the greater good here. Yeah, yeah. I guess at the end of the day, I'm like, why? Should, I'm I'm just like a we're working musicians, like who often struggle, like to get by. And does it make any sense for us to like take a huge hit like that to make a point? It seems like I'm doing more damage than I would be doing good, and the damage is to me and my employees and and my bandmates and my friends. I wouldn't do that to somebody else. I wouldn't prevent them from doing that job. And I wouldn't tell somebody not to work at McDonald's. You know, I wouldn't, I don't know. It's like you're you're in the hyper-capitalist society that is so messed up, but like it doesn't fall to the the hardworking people near the bottom to, uh, to I don't know, like try and change everything with uh, by by not participating. But it is hard. And am I am I near the bottom? I don't know. I like I, I grew up with money. I'm um, white. You know, it's like I have a lot of advantages, and I I had some leeway that I could have used, and I still think about it. The other side of it is like it's not a decision just for myself. It's like I've got my band, and like if I'm like we're taking a stand, and they're like, okay, I guess we're taking a stand. We don't get paid this spring. <laughs> Ezra wore a dress in public was on stage. That was almost a decade ago. In 2015, Ezra had a coming out of sorts when she wrote an op-ed in the Guardian newspaper about being gender non-conforming. The term means you don't conform to society's expectations of what's appropriate for your gender. For Ezra, it has meant freedom. The lyrics of songs like Body Was Made are explicit with regards to her thoughts on gender and sexuality. 
Transangelic Exodus, her last album, was all about a wounded angel who flees town in the red Camaro of their queer lover. On 12 Nudes, Calm Down, a.k.a. I Should Not Be Left Alone, Ezra shouts, panic-stricken, sweating in my bed, can't slow my heartbeat down so I thrash around instead, never-ending movie playing in my head of the dress you wore and all the shit you said. Suddenly I'm wondering, wait... Who is wearing this dress? The question becomes an invitation for the listener to take a walk on the wild side. It's kind of, for me, this like little interesting frizzen of who's wearing that dress, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I like that as a listener. You get this chance to pause, think about gender differently from how we usually think about gender. I feel like... A, there's so much more possibilities in a story. It's so much more exciting, yeah. right? But also it gives you a chance to like understand something different that you you maybe don't understand it to get a some sort of like inkling, a glimpse into something else. So now we get to ask people what pronoun mm-hmm. they want to use. Um, and I think that's amazing. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Oh my gosh, I have such a complicated relationship with that. Um well, I'm lucky. I'm okay with being called they or he or she. But she is the one I use first. And people, most of the people closest to me call me she. But um, I think that they're all right. And also, I love that people are asking and not assuming pronouns. I don't, sometimes I don't know what to say. I'm like, all of them. I I don't know. But then I have to kind of choose one do you ever like try and i don't know censor yourself in some way um i don't know i it's an interesting question do i ever censor myself i when i write it's like kind of important for me to not be thinking that anyone's gonna hear this thing i'm working on um i mean i write a lot of songs and more of them don't get heard I think than than do I don't know a lot these days a lot of them I don't finish and a lot of them we just don't record and I just when I'm I'm writing I assume no one's ever going to hear this I'm just doing a little thing and it's like if it turns out really good or it turns out good enough I suppose then people hear it but I don't assume that that's going to happen I have to not think that there's like an audience that I need to think about while writing um <clears throat> I mean, I guess I think of the audience as being like someone, like just what I would want to hear, what would seem cool to me as a fan of music. So if I think of someone just like me as my own audience, then that's a lot of freedom to write however, write in the same voice I think in. And I think that's part of what makes it good, that it's like my actual, um, the way I actually think, not the way I think people want to be spoken to. When you started out, you couldn't tell oh, there was all this other stuff going on necessarily from what you look like. But on stage, you then started to like have a little bit of lipstick on. And then like when I was speaking to you wearing red dresses and pearls, it was almost like you being on stage, You were sent, it was okay, first of all, to have all that costume. Were you just also like trying to find a way to come out properly? Yeah, well, no, I mean, um, I mean, I I dress a little nicer for shows sometimes, but 
but it's not a costume, you know. Um, I the first time I I dressed feminine in public was on stage. I mean, I'd done it in private and and in secret before. Um, and um, it was like a way to get that door open. Um, and I like I I'm so conflict avoidant. Like I didn't want to be gender nonconforming because I didn't want to because it's uncomfortable because it's hard. It's hard to be scowled at and stuff. Um, just everyone. I don't know, just wonder what's your deal. And um, I don't want that kind of attention. But um, I, I like, wouldn't have done it myself. Like, it was, like, I had, like, (laughs) the reason I first wore a dress on stage is because we played at this festival and there was this sort of nice clothing store that was like, we'll give you free clothes if you wear them on stage. And I was like, I don't want to wear your stupid clothes. Um, but then I was like, well, fine, then give me the dress. Give me the white dress. So I wear this white dress because I, I don't know, to me, I was like, ha you didn't think I would do that, did you? Um, and, but it was such a relief and just to have it on afterwards and I don't know. So anyway, that sort of like, the stage has been like a, a useful, um, gateway for like easing that um um that process into being publicly feminine now i just like dress feminine um pretty much all the time um in every part of my life and it's like i don't exactly know why but it has made my whole life much better i'm just a much happier person until you come across the guy outside, he says, "What's your deal?" Oh yeah, right. <laughs> no, I was just at the corner store. This was before we were recording at the corner store. What did he say? He said, "You know," he said, "What are you, bro? What are you, bro?" Um. Yeah, I I didn't answer. Um. Yeah, you get a lot of that kind of stuff, and it, yeah. It varies. It varies how much it affects my mood or life, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it feels just terrible. Sometimes I'm like, shut up. It's friggin' 2020. Like, you're the, you're out of touch for, like, not being used to this. But whatever. I don't, I, it, it's like, the fact is, like, at times it is so brutal and gives me, even, it, it's like almost existential. It's like it just gives me a like, oh, it's me against the world or it's us against the world. It's the queers against the not queers. And that that does lend itself to writing angry punk songs. For 12 nudes, it's not all power chords and punk. In America taps into a Springsteen-like traditional rock musicality without losing any teeth, especially in its razor-sharp observations of America in this moment. 
while I wanna be your girlfriend offers a more demure tone, it's no less subversive. All my friends are writing their resumes. My responsible friends are applying for jobs. But me, I was considering ditching Ezra and going by Esme. Baby, would you find that so odd? My dying friends are finding religion Well, my intellectual friends are all denying God But me, I got just one ambition I sit around all day wishing that the real me might be the one you want I want to be your girlfriend I want to walk down the street hanging from your arm That's right, little Okay, so uh, one of the other songs that I really like was I Want to Be Your Girlfriend. And you said you wanted to write like an, an earth angel for the queers, <laughs> which I think is so great. <laughs> uh, do you think you've been successful? I'm proud of I Want to Be Your Girlfriend. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's like a decent sort of doo-wop style song. But I think what makes it special or what makes me particularly proud of it is that complicated, simple, old-fashioned romance. But for me, it can't be uncomplicated. And like that gives it this this yearning that um, most of those romantic yearning songs don't quite have because it's, I mean, I think sometimes they used to have it. Heck, like the, just the fact of the matter is that like being a queer person and having desire is like unfortunately um, an act of sabotage to the status quo. Uh, or unfortunately or not, I don't know. I like I wish it could be simpler. But um, yeah, that's what I like about that song. These complicated questions on gender and sexuality are presented in all their joy, innocence and trauma on the popular Netflix series Sex Education. One of its main characters, Eric, the colorful Nigerian Ghanaian gay best friend, faces similar dilemmas that Ezra faced with issues of sexuality and religion. The show's music producers pick the perfect candidate in Ezra to write the soundtrack. She even appears on stage with a band in the first season's finale. When you got the Sex Education soundtrack, did you work on that differently from how you do your solo work? Um, uh, and also, like, to tie in with what you're saying, it's like I was looking at the... Uh, Coachella 2017 YouTube your performance online and then looking at like Glastonbury 2016 and there was so much a bigger crowd at 2016 Glastonbury in front of you than the Coachella crowd. Have you been on like late night shows and any kind of TV here? Well it's starting to even out a little more but yeah I mean it was the UK that like made me not quit that time I was talking about in 2013 I mean like the UK cares um, a little more, like the national 
media is like interested in us more. We haven't done any really significant TV in the U.S. I think we probably will. Um, probably could. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we hope, you know. Uh, please, if you're listening and you like book bands for a show, you'd love to be on, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where your show is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Sex Education, the right. the, the soundtrack, how, how did you approach writing that one? And, and that must have been a fun thing to do. Yeah, writing, writing and recording for Sex Education was very different. I was out of my depth, basically. The thing, a weird thing is that we started recording in a different way and with, in a different place with different people. And the Sex Education season one stuff was the first stuff we recorded. It was before we made our punk record there in the same place in Oakland with Trevor Brooks, the the brilliant um, engineer, mixer, producer person. And so we were doing something new and doing it in a new way. And um, it was like, whoa, it's different. But it, it sort of reset my brain in a way. Yeah, it it is a confusing thing to try to make music for a show that you haven't seen. I didn't even know what it looked like, you know. I mean, I had some scripts. Um, were, you, were you writing songs off like, oh, like in this scene, this is what it's about. These are the characters. This is what they're talking about. So you need to write a song here. No, I, I asked them to give me some kind of like assignments. And they were like, uh, OK, but like they were like, how about you just like do stuff that sounds like you? I mean, they gave me some feedback on a few like little acoustic phone demos that I sent them. panic fuck the hurt fuck the sadness fuck the shame wanna feel every feeling and only love only love will remain like this one's good but yeah i i was sort of just like okay i'm just gonna do what i have to offer and um, and then they're like, a lot of this is great. We're going to use most of it. <laughs> anyway, a confusing process that it felt totally different than making a record. And I was too nervous about it the first time around. We just like chilled out a little bit and like, oh, once we saw the show with our music in it, it was like, oh, okay, we can, we're not, we don't have to make something really slick and cleaned up for TV or anything. Like, we make some weird stuff that feels like us. I don't know if I can tell you I've got things to show that no one's ever seen I've got habits that are hard to break I swear each morning when I wake Today's the day I'm coming clean I can't stay this way But I pray that nothing changes Like I'm stuck between the gears of a broken machine I'm on fire and I'm frozen stiff down to the wire Wondering if today's the day I'm coming clean 
Ezra's music continues to strike a chord with new fans all over the world thanks to sex education. And while she hopes her music and the causes she highlights continues to gain traction here in America, she rarely talks of validation or industry nods. So what does making music at this particular point in time mean to you? I love um, in particular that making music, you just get to be in people's life. You, it gets your your art gets to be playing in 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 the air while people are doing things, um, you know whatever it is, going on long drives, falling in love with each other, or getting married, uh, like just making new friends. Like you become part of the story of strangers' lives, which is so. It's just such a mystery and an honor to me. And I know that the good stuff of music happens in the listener's heart, the best stuff, you know. It's like not in the music itself. It's in the process of hearing it and bringing it into your life, in your inner life. I mean, no music could be as good as how much I love the Velvet Underground. You know what I mean? Like, it is the loving of the music that and the, and the like, bringing it into the story of your life that, like really makes it great so I'm just honored that like people I think from what I hear from people they do that with my music and it's the greatest privilege and thrill listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Ezra Furman. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teo Blocky, an executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Thank you to Gold Diggers for the use of their LA studios. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You could find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Till next time. Wow.